Brothers and sisters, stand with me as I ask and call upon the Lord for His blessing, and then I'll read verse 7 down through verse 11. Let's pray. And Blessed Lord, as we come now to this command to be patient, teach us. Help us understand the difference between this Christian grace and the... Uh, the world's use of patience. Help us, O Lord, conform to Your most perfect and holy Word. Help us, Lord, understand what we should do. Help us to live it. Give us the strength we need, Lord. Continue to work in us mightily, Lord, that we would glorify You, Lord. But in all that we do, whatever we face, in any affliction that we find ourselves in or going to, we ask, Lord, that You give us the strength we need to glorify You. That, Lord, we take no credit for any of it, but that we would, by grace, be obedient to what You have called us to do. And we shall praise Your name. Lord, teach us to praise Your name when we are afflicted. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Chapter 5 of the book of James, starting in verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And do not complain, brethren against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning as we look at this commandment to be patient, I want to address this Christian grace in three categories or in three ways. Number one, I'm going to discuss the nature of of Christian patience. The nature of it. Now, the reason we want to discuss the nature of Christian patience is because we want to make sure that we are not in error exercising some stoicism, some humanistic version of patience, some worldly um, uh, 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 practice that that we may be guilty of. We want to make sure that what we practice is Christian patience. Number two, we're going to look at the steps or the progression of Christian patience. We are to notice and recognize that there is a progression of patience. This is going to help us again foster and understand our own practice of it. And number three, we're going to look at the similarities of Christian patience to the work of the farmer. So those are the three things that we are going to spend some time with this morning. Now, 
before we get started, what I want to establish is this. Patience, as it's being commanded by James, is a Christian grace. Now what I mean by saying that is that it's a grace that only a Christian, a true born-again person can practice. This patience that I'm referring to that James is teaching us about is not possible for the world to practice it. It's impossible for those who do not believe in Christ, for those who have never been born again, for those that do not have the the sanctifying saving work of the Spirit in them. It's impossible for them to practice this patience. That's what I mean by that. Let's look at many passages of Scripture. We're going to lay a foundation and then we should be able to step easily through the text itself. Let's go to Galatians. Take your Bibles and open to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Look right there with me at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and what? Patience. Patience. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is something that the Holy Spirit is cultivating in us. Now let me say this as we look at some other verses. That is, when we possess the presence of the Spirit in our lives, that is, He is taking up residence with us and in us, what does He bring with Him? He brings these graces, these graces of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, if you go back many sermons, you'll remember that I talked about these graces in the life of the believer. And what has to happen is, yes, we have the fruit of love. You may say, well, pastor, I'm just not that much of a loving person. You're not cultivating it. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are able to cultivate by degree these graces. And if you remember what James has already said in chapter 1, what's the purpose of the trial itself? To see these graces enhanced and come to, to, to the forefront, if you will. What's the most important aspect and attribute of our life? It's not what we look like. It's what we act like. The most important attribute any of us possess is not what we have on the outside, because much even that, who gave us the way we look? God did. It's what's in us that must be cultivated and strengthened so that these characteristics are the dominant presence in our lives. I'm not saying it's wrong to want to be beautiful. I'm not, but if, 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 if beauty means more to you or handsomeness, I don't want to leave any of the men out because men are just as vain as women. If what you look like is more important physically than spiritually and uh, gracious in the, in the scheme of grace, think about whether or not you're a real Christian. If you take priority in the physical and you do not have any interest in the the characteristics of grace and spirituality, 
You, my friend, need to examine whether you belong to Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We're talking about Christian gra- the grace of patience. I'm convincing you by the Word of God that this is a grace and that if you are a Christian, you possess it. It doesn't mean it's strong in your life, but it means you do possess it and you need to cultivate it. You need to practice it. You need to strengthen it. 1 Corinthians 13. Um, look at verse 4. Love is what? Patient. Now, love is a dominant characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But notice what the Apostle Paul teaches us another aspect of what true Christian love, the characteristic of Christian love. Love, which is a grace, is patient, which is a grace. It's the activity of grace. Because notice, the word patient there is not a noun, it's a verb. It's, it does this. The grace of love is able to exercise in a patient way with others. That's important. Turn with me to Romans 12, 12. Romans 12, 12. Back up to verse 9. It says, let love be Without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in in, uh, tribulation, devoted to prayer, and contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. What does Paul do here? Paul says that this patience, being patient, is is a characteristic along with love and kindness and mercy. You can see the categories there, right? It's important. It's important. You know, we may say, well, look, I'm all about love, but not so much about patience. Well, how do you separate the two? It's the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes into our lives, He doesn't say, okay, this person can really only handle two of the ten. No, He brings it all. We get it all. You, the blessing is we get all of God. Amen. When we become Christians, we get all the goodness that He has for us. And then by that Spirit and by the teaching of the Word of God through His ordained ministers, we are to what? Fan in the flame those graces so that we can truly make our profession of faith credible. Isn't that great? That's great. Because listen to, let me tell, we got, easy believism is rampant. Yes, sir. It's rampant. We just say one thing and we expect everything to bow down to what we say. It doesn't work like that in the real world. You got to back it up. You got to back it up. You got to back up your testimony. You got to back up your faith. You got to back these things up. I mean, look, it's obvious that the world is the world. <laughs> it ought to be obvious that Christians are Christians. And I'm not talking about perfection, but what I am talking about is seeing in our lives these graces, particularly this morning, patience cultivated by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by the teaching of the Word of God, and great by the encouragements of the worship of grace and other graces that we see this grace increased in our lives. That's what we want. Let's look up one more verse. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. 
Well, we're going to look up several other verses. I don't know why I said that. but We are going to move quickly. Notice this is um, John that's being persecuted for his testimony in Christ. And notice what he says. I, John, your brother. Now he's talking to the church. Here's the apostle John. He's not above the brethren. He is suffering with the brethren, he says, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Okay, now what I'm going to point out by that, where, where does Christian perseverance and patience, where is, does it lie? In Christ. It's a grace. You can't go by it. You can't take a 12-step organization. You know, you can't go do a 12-step um, rehab and get it. You can't buy it off the internet. You can't go exercise in a gym and gain it. You can only get it in Christ. And whenever you find or whenever you read about faithful men and women of the past who endured so much and yet they inspire us with their spiritual tenacity and faithfulness, we are to see them in Christ. What stands behind that faithfulness but a great Savior, a powerful Savior, and a strong Savior? Now we need to realize that and understand that. Let me mention a couple of these other things because like all these other graces, they have the, like all other graces, patience has to be cultivated. It has to be exhibited in our daily lives. And and the when does patience really come to the forefront? When there's a trial. When there's hardship. When there's affliction, when there's a wrong done, what's required of us is not vengeance, it's not revenge, it's not hatred, it's patience. Notice the context in James. Notice he just finished rebuking and condemning the rich and warning them of the day of judgment that they were going to be judged. And now he comes in verse 7 and he says, Brethren, be patient. Be patient in your and be patient in the wrongdoing that's done to you. Be patient in the injustices that are coming your way. They're not your fault. But they do come from the hand of a sovereign God. To be patient, brothers and sisters, is to be godly. To be godly is to be God-like. I'm going to give you some references and we're not going to look them up. Romans 2.4 talks about the patience of God. God is patient. Who is God patient with? Do I need a mirror? Who is God patient with? He's patient with all of us. He's patient with pagans. He's patient with the world that the gospel is going into. He's patient with evildoers. Paul speaks of God's patience in 
uh, chapter 9 of Romans, verse 22. 1 Peter 3. Let's look at that one. I think that's the one that I really thought was helpful. It's close to James. Let's look at that. 1 Peter 3, verse 20. Let me back up to verse 18 and read the context. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And I'm just going to stop there to highlight God's patience. We know that the Bible speaks of Noah being a preacher of righteousness. And that Noah preached for many, many decades the gospel of Jesus Christ, commanding repentance to a very evil and ungodly land. And they rejected. They denied it. They didn't want it. They loved their sins more than they loved God's grace and forgiveness. But notice the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks back at that time and says, it was only God's patience that held His hand. When do the wicked deserve judgment? Immediately. When do the wicked deserve punishment? When they sin. But how often, brothers and sisters, is our God patient? I mean, can we not testify as Christians that we have not gotten what we deserve? And God's patience is something we ought to praise Him for? Does this, has this land that is committed to atheism and science, atheism and many facets of politics, See God's patience with us? We always talk about how long can this go on? How can a land that has had so much light in the past now be guilty of such heinous blasphemy? Loving what God loves and hating, I mean, loving what God hates and hating what God loves. Is He patient? Yes, He is patient. So I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that God is patient. And we ought to be godly and godlike. So not only is it a Christian grace that we must cultivate it, but it's also something that we must emulate as well. Another category of this patience, biblically, topically speaking, is that Christians are called upon in the Scriptures to be patient and gracious with one another. And think about Ephesians 4.2 and Colossians 1.11 and Colossians 3.12. You see, brothers and sisters, it's a great sin of hypocrisy when God, who has been so patient and gracious with us, that we don't extend that graciousness and patience to others. 
as if we have never done anything wrong, as if we always give prompt obedience to every commandment God has ever given to us, as if we walked out of every church service with a systematic plan to put into practice everything we've ever heard the preacher say, which is not true, that we should be patient with others. The text is going to inspire us to this patience. If we go back to the book of James, let us look at verse 7. And I'm going to just spend our time this morning in those first two verses, 7 and 8, to get a, a full picture, if you will, of what this patience is. When James speaks of this patience, he is talking about long-suffering. He's talking about it's not just because there are differing degrees of patience. He is speaking of the patience that comes because of affliction, hardship, the sting of life, if you will, the the bad news, the, the tragedy, the unexpected difficulty that spontaneously arose out of Thin air is now upon us, and this patience that we are called to must contend with this hurt, this hurt, this pain. It has to have this element to it. That's what James is referring to. He says, oh, don't don't just pass the pain away from you. Learn how to embrace it as it comes from the hand of a wise and gracious, loving God. That's chapter 1. See, we learned all that back in chapter 1. Now he's kind of come here and he's given this practical application. He says, wait a minute, brothers and sisters. You've been done wrong, but be patient. That's not what we want to hear. We don't want to hear those words. We want to hear justice. We want to hear words of justice. We want to hear words of force. We want the army called in. We want the jets to fly over. We want bombs dropped. We want justice. Where we need to learn how to pray and ask God, give me the strength to cultivate the grace that you've given me to be patient. Dealing with long-suffering and hurt. You've been hurt. You know what pain is? The pain of a broken relationship, the pain of a betrayal of a friend, the hurt of a, uh, that you might experience in a marriage relationship, a child-parent relationship. When people that know better should have done something differently, do you know that kind of hurt and pain? Listen to what Thomas Manton said, and I think it holds very true. It's the duty of God's children to be patient under their sufferings, even if those trials are long and sharp. It is easier in a calm and sedate condition to talk about patience than it is to exercise it in the time of affliction. And we all say amen to that. Now, what's the difference in this patience that we ought to exhibit and cultivate and, and, and to show forth our faith by our patience? What is it supposed to look like? Well, it's got to be different than the patience of the world. 
The world does practice a form of patience. Statements like, and this is going to be convicting, but please don't tune me out. Whatever. Whatever is a statement of whatever. What will be, what, what will be, what will be, right? What it'll be is what it'll be. And there are other statements that the world make in order to pass by the trial and tribulation. But that's not the way we ought to see these trials and tribulations. In fact, there are other ways people deal with tragedies and hardships and hurts. Some of them do it with drugs. Some of it do it by drinking. I mean, a lot of people want to numb their hurt and pain by exercising other pleasures in order so that they might forget about the reality of the sorrow that they are in. That's not the way the Christian lives. That's not what a Christian ought to do. And if a Christian finds him or herself in that situation, they must beg God for repentance and the strength to come out of that worldly behavior and to begin responding like a child of God. Thomas Manton goes on, he says, Christian patience here presupposes a sense of evil. Evil. There's an evil being done. I mean, when you use people, you abuse people, when you betray people, when you lie to people, when you deceive people, it's evil. But what are we to do with it? What are we to do about it? Well, let's look at the true nature of Christian patience. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to give you a word that describes the very nature and essence of Christian patience. And it's the word submission. Submission. See, how can you endure the affliction faithfully if you don't submit to it? If you fight against it, if you rail against it, if you numb yourself against it, if you ignore it, if you act like it doesn't exist, how in the world can these graces be cultivated? How in the world can you highlight your faith by these Christian graces? Because if you have faith, you have these graces. It's submission. It's the submission of the soul. That's the true nature. Because see, brothers and sisters, without submission, you get complaining. Because in complaining, when we complain, what we're saying is, number one, we don't like what God is doing. Number two, we're saying we don't deserve what God's doing to us. And number three, it's an inconvenience. We complain. And somehow we believe that those who are doing us wrong are worthy of greater judgment than us when we are all worthy of hell itself. Submission of the soul, brothers and sisters, is the essence of Christian patience. A couple of passages of Scripture that come up, I'm going to give them to you. We're not going to turn there for the sake of the, the brevity this morning. But Isaiah 39, 8, where the believer learns that the word of the Lord is good. 
Can we say that? Are we able to say that in the most hurtful of times? In the most, in the most anguish of heart and soul, can we learn to say, along with Isaiah, that God's Word is good? That's only comes from the, a soul that's submitted to the glory of God. Not only does the soul learn to speak of the goodness of God's word and judgments, but it learns to accept those judgments. Does God not know what you need? Does He not know what we all need? And does He not know it perfectly and intimately? Is He not all wise? Is He not all understanding? Does He not know our frailties and weakness better than we do? And I hope you say yes to all of that. Because if you can't say yes to any of that, or some of that, or in, brothers and sisters, you, you need to question whether or not you're a child of God. We must learn, brothers and sisters, to accept God's will, God's judgment, Leviticus 26.41 is a passage that teaches us that we must learn to accept it. We must learn to bridle our tongues. We must learn to, we must train our minds to dwell upon the goodness of God when that goodness is the most challenged. When is God's goodness most challenged? When you suffer. We don't challenge God in the good times, do we? We don't. We do a great job of receiving the good and a poor job of receiving the bad. I want to give you an example of the bridled tongue in the life of Aaron, the high priest. Moses' brother. See, Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And they were priests before God and they went into the Holy of Holies, which was not a safe place. See, it's never safe to approach a holy God as a sinner. Not safe. <laughs> not safe. You better be covered in the blood of Jesus. Well, they offered what the Scriptures call strange fire. And God killed them both. You know, the priest would walk in and he would wear bells on his garments. Jingling, jingling. And guess what happened when that bell stopped jingling? They pulled him out. They had a rope tied around him. They didn't go in and get him. You know why? Because God told them not to go in there. Only one person was allowed in there. That was the high priest. And so when that bell stopped jingling, they started pulling. And they would drag his dead body out. It happened twice. And Moses comes and he tells Aaron, his brother, that's what his nephews, that God is just. And Aaron held his tongue, the Bible says. Aaron had to submit 
to the judging hand of God. And he didn't justify himself. And he didn't justify those boys who knew better. His sons. Don't you think his heart was broken? Don't you think his heart ached? Don't you think he felt like God had done taken his heart and just crushed it in his fist? The Bible says he held his tongue. What can he say? Does the clay speak against the potter? No. No. There is a progression. Now we talk about this nature of, of Christian patience. And I've given you one word. And it's a word that you ought to uh, be able to memorize. It's the word submission. Secondly, there is a progressiveness to this patience. That is, it didn't just come all at once. There are steps. There are ways in which it should be approached, or at least we see in Scripture. That is, we ought to consider what this looks like in order for us to respond appropriately. Number one, number one, the afflicted soul sees God in the affliction. That's step number one. How are you going to exercise the grace of patience if you don't see God in it? If you don't recognize God's fingerprint, if you don't recognize this is from the Lord, how? Psalm 39.9 I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Now that's hard to do in the day in which we live because there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of Christians that believe in error out there and that error is this. God does all the good and happy things. He ha- he, God orchestrates birthday parties and Satan orchestrates funerals. Bad things. It all comes from the hand of God. He's sovereign. Satan's not sovereign. God, who is sovereign, can allow Satan to afflict any of his children like he did Job. But even that affliction is governed and managed by God's grace and God's mercy. Second step is to see that God is sovereign in the activity. It's God who is sovereign. He controls everything. He is the one who is up above everything. Guess what? It's not the Democratic or Republican Party. They don't control the world. It's not a politician who can promise to bring all good things into your life and to take away all the bad things. Only God manages life. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can give life. It's God who is sovereign. And we It ought to be one chief characteristic of every true believer is to recognize God is sovereign. We're not. I want you to make make yourself a note, keep keep a mental note at least, of how often men brag about almost doing the things God can only do. You may be careful the promises you make. Unless they are within your ability and within your circumstances and talents and gifts, don't make those promises. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. You're not God. Don't play God. God doesn't like it when people play Him. 
God is sovereign. Yes, the trials do come from the hands of wicked people. But God is managing that. And that should give us great hope that that's mitigated and lessened. Because you know what? What if, hey, what if the evil person could have his way? Hmm. What if they could just do it? See, we don't even know what they wanted to do. We don't even know how God in His sovereignty had constrained them, right? Just imagine if God did not mitigate or manage or control the situation. How bad it could have been. God is sovereign. Number three. Number three, it's not just that God is sovereign because even Job said that He answers no man. (laughs) That's what Job said in his own affliction. God doesn't answer no man. I think we live in one of the brassiest, sassiest, saltiest ages. When it comes to sassing God, when it comes to blaspheming God's name, there is no fear in this land. None. I have witnessed, I have heard with my ears, seen with my eyes, men that have called thunder and lightning down from heaven if God exists. I'm moving out of the way. Because if it's not a lightning bolt, it's a disease. God will not be mocked. No man or no woman is ever going to get away with mocking and blaspheming God's name. Period. The third aspect, brothers and sisters, is to understand in your heart that God mitigates. He uses His sovereignty to modify and mitigate the circumstance. And if you believe God is good, then how is God going to modify and mitigate the circumstance to your favor? Do you ever think about it? See, we only look at the heart. Why me? Why me, Lord? Why would you do this to me? How would you? Why would you want to do this to me? I am thy servant. I come to church. I mean, I'm here clean and I do all these things. Why would you do this to me? No, 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 no. Lord, I can't imagine what this affliction would look like if you didn't manage it. I can't imagine what Satan would have done if you hadn't controlled him. I can't imagine. Lord, if you had not modified, if you have not mitigated, if you had not organized it, if you didn't control it, oh my Lord, I don't know what I would do, but praise your name that you act in my stead and my good. That's hard, isn't it, brothers? This is a hard word, is it not? It certainly doesn't come from a preacher who practices it perfectly or even halfway perfectly, I promise you that. But this mitigation, what to look for. When you think about mitigating and control, I'm going to give you several attributes you ought to look for in God. Number one, justice. God is just. God cannot not be just. The evil will be repaid And good is always rewarded. Amen. When you respond in good, God will bless you more than you deserve. And when we do evil, God will chasten us. And He will punish the evildoer. What does He tell the rich up here? Judgment day is coming. 
howl, weep, and wail because there's a day of judgment coming. Justice. Secondly, mercy. Look for God's mercy. Uh, uh, Ezra 9 verse 13, You have punished us less than our sins deserve. I could close the book there. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, brothers and sisters, we need to have a come to Jesus meeting. We have yet to receive what our sins deserve. Mercy. Mercy. Thirdly, faithfulness. Faithfulness. Psalm 119, verse, 30, 30, I mean, verse 71, the psalmist says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. What the psalmist is saying is, you know, I really wasn't as diligent in studying the Word of God until I became hurt. Until I needed it. You know, all, a lot of men get spiritual when they get close to dying. It's true. It's true. I, I mean, I don't think there's any... That's not bad. That's a good thing. You best get spiritual if you're close to dying. Because guess what? On the other side of that threshold is Jesus, who is both Savior and Judge. Look for God's faithfulness. Because if God wants these graces cultivated... so that, Look, if you don't have patience... Love, mercy, kindness, gentleness. You, don't, you should not have any confidence in your faith. How do you know you have saving faith? You know what you'll say? Well, pastor, I believe. Well, wait a minute. Do you believe to believe to be saved? Or do you believe in Christ and now Christ has given you the Spirit and the grace of these, uh, the, 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 these graces so that you cultivate these graces and those, those graces testify to your saving faith. You get that? They're all intertwined. That's why when you see a person professing faith as if that's the last thing that you have to speak about, and never cultivate any of these other graces, is not a Christian. Not a Christian. And that's what God's going to judge him on on Judgment Day. He's going to accuse him of being a liar. He not only lied to himself or herself, but he lied to everybody around him. You're not a Christian. You gave false testimony of my grace. It's faithfulness. These trials are faithful to do what? See these graces come out and strengthened. And then fourthly, wisdom. Wisdom. You know, if, if the Queen of Sheba, I want you to think about the wisdom of Solomon. How grand the wisdom of Solomon is in the Bible. It says no one was like him on earth. I mean, his kingdom was the richest kingdom the world has ever known. The throne was made of gold. I mean, he had gold inlaced everywhere on the temple. It staggered the human mind. The queen of Sheba heard about his wisdom. And so she travels halfway across the world to witness this wisdom for herself. And you know what she says when she sees him? Hush my mouth. I'm staggered by your glory, Solomon. 
Words have failed to truly exhibit how wise and blessed you really are. That's staggering. But guess what? There's one wiser than Solomon. And it's the Son of God. His name is Jesus. And He knows exactly how to treat us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how to prick our hearts and to touch us so that we what? Want to learn, want to grow, want to exhibit these graces in a way that gives Him glory, in a way that enhances our enjoyment and happiness on the earth. He does it perfectly. Perfectly. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to be able to Hit all of this, but just there is a culmination of this patience. Look back with me at James. Um, notice verse 8. Now, I'm not dealing with the farmer yet, but just, just look at verse 8 or verse 7. It says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 8. I said verse 7, but you can see there the coming of the Lord in verse 7, verse 8. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. That is, when a Christian exercises Christian patience, there is a termination. That is, there is a, a culmination of it. It's not open-ended. It's, it's not something that just continues on and on and on and on. That we ought to see the coming of the Lord as a termination of the patience. That's what he says. Brethren, be patient until the coming of of the Lord. Now let me just address this coming of the Lord for a moment. There, the coming of the Lord in the Bible mostly speaks to God's judgment. God comes all the time. He comes in history. He comes to people and He comes to people and brings them salvation. He comes to open their eyes. He comes to open their hearts. He comes to give them the Word. You know that my preaching is the preaching from a sinful, fallible man, but Christ beyond me in grace is preaching to your heart internally. My words can only reach your ears. Christ's preaching goes into the heart. He comes. He's here. God comes to men. He comes to nations he comes to the world. He's what he did. He come to the world in Noah's day. The whole world. And he did what? He flooded it. He judged it. He comes to certain situations and nations like the Tower of Babel, right? And he judges them. He comes to cities. He comes to Nineveh. Came to Babylon. He's come to Persia. Right? Yeah, he came and he judged them. He came to Israel. He judged them. We see in the book of Revelation, probably the clearest example of this, he says, where he'll come to the church and remove their lampstand, that is to remove their light, to remove their influence, to remove their ministry. Christ tells each of those churches, but one, that he has problems with them, and if they don't repent, he's going to come to them. That's a coming of the Lord. 
There's aspects of this that we ought to consider. Number one, it may mean that Christ has a particular judgment upon the wicked. That is, notice the wicked being judged here are the ones who are rich and abusing their brethren. And Christ can come in judgment. How would Christ come in judgment among a group? Well, He might bring, he might bring the financial market down. If they worship money over God and doing the right thing, He may close the market. He may cause the dollar to be worth nothing, right? I mean, He can do a number of things, right? He can crash an economy. Why? Because people worship money. And what does He teach us when the market crashes? What does He teach us when you can take a a barrel load of dollars and can't buy a loaf of bread? He teaches us that we are not to depend upon mammon. But upon God who brings us bread. It's not by bread that we live, by Christ. It's it's by every word out of the mouth of God we live. That's what he's talking about. It could be that. He could bring judgment. Now let me say this too. When we see God's strict judgment in times past, that is, in, in biblical Scripture, When we see the harshest and fiercest judgments, it's because all three divine institutions have broken down. The family, the church, the family is broken. Men are not the head of of their homes. Women and men are fighting over, they're competing over headship. They're competing over how to raise the children. They let the children raise themselves. The home's broken. Secondly, the church is corrupt. The church no longer is concerned with the glory of God and the spreading of the gospel. All they're concerned about is feeling good, scratching their itching ears. They want to be told what they want to be told. Remember the king of Israel? He cried and he said, I don't like Micaiah because he don't preach what I want him to preach. He tells me all the bad things that are going to happen. And all the other prophets treat all the good things. What did, well, who was true? Micaiah. His word held out. Why? Because he preached the word. God killed him. He didn't listen. Isn't the whole human history about the struggle of who's going to be God? <laughs> who's going to be God? I, the Lord, will be God, or you're going to try to be God. Either way, there's going to be a great conflict. We see the corruption of the church, and we see the corruption of the state. When those three institutions are broken, brothers and sisters, that's when you see and find the harshest, severest judgments. Well, I'm going to move on to the... I, I can't. I, I'm out of time. I just... Notice what James likens this patience to. A farmer. A farmer. Now, they are to be patient until the coming of the Lord. That is, the Lord's going to come. And what is the Lord going to do? He's going to exercise justice. He's going to give the wicked what they deserve, and He's going to give the saints what they deserve in Christ. That's why you need to be found in Christ. I mean, you know, you need to be found, found obedient. You need to be found in grace. You need to be found in all the ways a Christian must be exhibited, right? If not, guess what happens? You get consumed up in the world. He he applies this 
patience to like a farmer. And, and I guess this is a segue to that. He says, Christians are Christian patience requires an eye to God's judgment to be faithful. God, I'm going to wait on you. you I'm not going to act out in revenge. I'm waiting on you. I'm going to do my work of faith, and I'm going to wait on you to do the rest. I, I, that's your realm. This is my realm. I'm going to obey what I know. I'm going to let you do everything. You're God. I'm not God. I'm not God. But in order to be encouraged and faithful, we must recognize that God is going to bring recompense. Now that's an encouragement for us also to go to one another too. Say, brother, forgive me. I I was wrong. Sister, forgive me. I was wrong. I I shouldn't have lived that way. I shouldn't have done those things. We need to be like a farmer and it's the patience like a farmer because what does the farmer have to learn to do? He has to learn, the text says, to wait. He has to learn to wait. Uh, Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this comment in one of the sermons I listened to. It was about uh, the agrarian society. And he said this. Listen, this is, this is like a, a proverb that was in England. God is in the dirt. What he meant by that is city dwellers learn to forget God. Because they can go to the store for their bread, for their soup, for all that. they got every convenience right there. The farmer, those who live off the land, those who till the soil, fertilize the soil, water the soil, plants the seed, wait for the harvest. They spend their time doing what they can do and trusting God for everything else. God is in the dirt. And there is something to agrarian societies being a little more docile and reasonable than city people. Elitist. Spoiled. Where a man or a woman must work and then expect God to actually add the blessing to the work of their hands. Wait. Wait. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late. Can the farmer make it rain? No. Can the farmer demand rain? He cannot. She cannot. He must wait upon God's giving of rain to bless what he's worked on with water. Brothers and sisters, it would prove us valuable to spend time considering patience like a farmer. Dwell on that. James has given us a picture. Let me, let me give you another picture. It's like this. God has not only given us His Word and Spirit, because the Word is the saving Word, it's the sanctifying Word, but God has also given us pictures to, to, to think about and to consider and to see those characteristics in our lives, because He even tells the lazy person, go to the ant. Go to the ant. Study the ant. If you want to learn to be industrious, study the ant. If you want to learn to be patient, think about a farmer. And that brings me to my application and close of the sermon. Thank you for...
Hanging in there. What can we learn? Two things. Number one, learn to think like a Christian. Learn to think about the trials and tribulations like a Christian, not the world. Learn to think about the God of the tribulation and all the things we talked about. Learn to exercise your mind in the method of life and living. Learn to debate this in your heart. Debate in your heart the truth. Ask yourself these questions. Am I investing in this life for so little in the next? What's the, what's the answer? Well, no. All that I invest in in this life spiritually, I will reap a hundredfold in the next life. Amen. Amen. Is it worth it? Does the farmer sit back, spend his money, spend his energy, hire people to come out, work in the fields, cultivate, fertilize, plant all the seed? He gives all he's got and he does what? He waits on the produce. Do you think by your obedience in this life, you are investing little to, to get little? No. You're investing everything. That's what faith does. Invest all you have because even in the next life, hey, what you will receive far exceeds your imagination. Think, brothers, like a Christian. Secondly, live like a Christian. Do what you have to do. Now listen to this. This is simple. It's not profound. Do what you know to do. Don't let anguish and pain paralyze you from what you ought to be doing. That's depression. When you suffer from depression, you sit around. You lie around. You, you, you waste time. You mill around. Have you ever been busy and not been active? I mean, have you ever been active but not productive? Depression does that. Have, be productive. Do the things you know to do that's biblical. When you are being afflicted, do the things you know to do. If I need to pray more, pray more. If I need to read more so that I can understand my affliction, I need to read more and study more. If I need to counsel with my pastor more, I need to counsel with my pastor more. If I need to talk to my mama, if I need to talk to my daddy, I need to talk to my spiritual friends. If I need to do any of the things, do it. Do it. But don't let yourself become discouraged, which leads to greater inactivity. Do what you do in God's strength and grace considering the circumstance. There may be some things you can't do, but guess what? You really want to. And God sees that too. Because God knows the heart. Lord, I can't. I'm physically constrained from being where I want to be and doing what I want to do. I can't do it. But Lord, you know I want to. And don't let this pass from me. Do all that you do in faith because brothers and sisters, if you don't do it in faith, it is sin. You will reap what you sow. Fruit, like the farmer, comes from the work. What if the farmer gets depressed because he goes, well, I can't bring the rain. Why should I plant? Why should I hair? Why should I pull weeds? Why should I fertilize? I can't bring the rain. What's the farmer do? The farmer does what he can do. And he trusts God for everything else.
Be like a farmer. Be patient. Let's pray. Excellent.